In Sioux Falls, South Dakota, there's a car dealership. And this car dealership, a few years ago, was vandalized. People had come into the car dealership in the middle of the night, they, they jumped on the cars, they beat in the doors, they scratched the paint. All in all, damages were something like $25,000. Well, they caught the two guys that did it. I mean, there's video cameras everywhere, they just put their pictures out to the public, and just like that, they knew who the culprits were. But the owner of this car dealership felt something twinging in his heart when he saw that it was a 14-year-old boy as one of the perpetrators. He inquired a bit and found out that this boy lived with his mother in an apartment in a not-so-great part of town, that this boy walked three miles to school every day, and that there was no chance that this family had $25,000 lying around to reimburse him. And so he decided to drop the charges, and then he helped this boy and his mother into a better apartment. He gave the kid a bicycle and bus passes. No strings attached. This boy, after school, and on the weekends, found himself drawn back to the car dealership. Nobody asked him to come back and work off his debt or anything. There wasn't a debt to work off. This kid was just showing up after school because he wanted to be there. And he started emptying trash cans and sweeping floors and pretty much spending every moment that he could with this man at this car dealership. This man said that he is hoping to follow this 14-year-old all the way through high school, make sure he gets through. What I love about that story is it's not a story of tough love. All right, there, there, there's no tough love in this story. Tough love would have been the guy saying, boy, look, you damaged these cars, uh, you gotta go to the juvenile detention center, sorry, you do the crime, you pay the time, right? That makes sense. But there's no tough love here. There's not even just love, okay? It, it would have been incredibly gracious for this man to say, okay, I'm gonna drop all charges, and instead, why don't you come and work for me for a number of years, pay off your debt, you know, get a good work ethic in this guy. But he doesn't even do that. Instead, he does this outrageous, almost offensive, act towards this boy and just lets him off the hook. And he doesn't just let him off the hook, he gives him a bicycle and an apartment and a bus pass. I mean, you can hear the critics, what they want to say to this guy. You know, what are you doing? You are teaching this kid that if he ruins a car, he gets a bike. You're ruining this generation of entitled whatever, whatever, whatever. You can see how people would be offended by this man's act. This story, though, sounds a bit familiar to me. Uh, I think there's some crossover between this car dealership and Luke 15. In the passage that Morgan just read, uh, we don't see tough love. We don't see the father saying, boy, look, 
you took the money, I'm sorry, I love you, but you gotta go back to the pigs. You made this bed, now you gotta lay in it. Natural consequences, right? And there's no just love. The father doesn't say, oh, I'm so glad you're here, welcome back, I love you, I forgive you. Hey, there's your field, why don't you head over there? Even that would have been gracious. But instead, the father does this outrageous, almost offensive love towards his son. A while back, I was teaching New Testament at Indiana Wesleyan, and I asked my students to take a few moments to read through Luke 15 on their own, to read this parable, and to take a little bit of time and just reflect on who they identified with the most in the story. As I looked through their responses, there were a number of people who identified with the younger son, maybe they had a period of rebellion. There were those who identified with the older son, you know, well, boy, I've never really gone away from the church. There were a few people that said they identified with the father. Uh, one in particular that caught my eye. This person wrote, I identify the most with the father because I've had to forgive a lot of people in my life. And then she adds, but I would not have thrown a party that was completely unnecessary and just rewards bad behavior. <laughs> I think there's an older brother hiding in there somewhere. But I, I read that and was struck by the thought, boy, she's right. In fact, that's a pretty good definition of the gospel right there. Completely unnecessary and just rewards bad behavior. This is why the gospel is a stumbling block. This is why the Pharisees want to pull their hair out with Jesus. It's not because of some starry-eyed, oh, this is too good to be true. It's because when you look at it, it's offensive. This isn't what is supposed to happen. This goes against our understanding of justice. Right before Jesus tells this parable, he's hanging out with the religious leaders who are saying to him, this man eats with sinners and welcomes them. I imagine if you were to look up Jesus' Facebook page, you would be embarrassed by his friends, probably blush at the places he had gone. But that's the gospel. Again, what the, what the teachers of the law said is, again, almost a definition of the gospel. We just change our tone, so it's not, this man eats with sinners and welcomes them. It's, oh, this man eats with sinners and welcomes them. It's good news right there. Troubling, though. This is how Jesus treats sinners. It is completely unnecessary and just rewards bad behavior. If our understanding of the gospel isn't at least a little bit offensive, then it's probably not a true understanding of the gospel. If we don't have elements of our understanding of faith to be somewhat offensive, to go against our sensibilities, then it could be that we have created a gospel in our own image, which of course is no gospel at all. The Apostle Paul, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. He came for the sick, not the healthy, and, and he does so without the smallest bit of shame. Listen to these words again. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him 
and was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son, threw his arms around him, and kissed him. The son said to him, Father, I have sinned. Okay, did you catch this? The, the hugging, the kissing, the embracing, this is all happening before the son apologizes. It's not like the son came home and repented and then the father brought him into the fold. The father is loving this kid before he's got a single word of repentance on his lips. And he's doing so without the smallest hint of shame. And he's not just hugging him. He is giving him clothes, the finest robes in the house, and sandals and rings for his fingers. Again, he's embracing his son while he's still in his pig clothes. He's not wearing the fine garments yet. He is in the father's embrace, smelling like pigs. When I was six, my dad took me to a hog farm. I don't remember being particularly interested in hogs, but when you have five children, you tend to lean towards those activities which are free. So some kids go to Disneyland, I go to hog farms. I think I enjoy it, though. I remember enjoying it. Uh, I remember actually getting to ride a hog around in a circle. It was fun. But the main thing that I remember from that day was coming home and not being allowed in the house until I had changed my clothes. I spent, what, an hour or two there, and I came away just reeking of the hogs. We've got the father embracing before he's apologized, before he's changed his clothes and all of his filth. The father doesn't care about any of that getting on himself. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son, threw his arms around him and kissed him. The son said, "Father." I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Pause. Some of us like to end the story right here. We can kind of make space in our minds for a God that welcomes us back in and sends us out to the field again, right? We can kind of sort of wrap our minds around a father that embraces and brings us in, says, okay, now off to the fields with you. That would make sense. That's not what happens here. The father is not welcoming him back in order to give him a job. He's welcoming him back in order to celebrate him, to throw a party, to rejoice. <laughs> Robe, ring, sandals, clothes, calf, feast, party. And all of this is done without a hint of shame from the father. Okay, it's not like the father throws this party and then stands in the middle and says, now, just for the record, I don't condone his behavior. There's no caveats like that. It's just a pure celebration of what has taken place. No strings attached. God doesn't want to just save us from our sins. He wants to give us life. He doesn't want to just pull us from the pig pens. He wants us to bring us into the celebration. So often we want to save that party for the people who didn't know any better. 
Uh, those parties are for the new converts. I grew up in the church. I know right from wrong. That party's not for me. When I mess up, I know better. That party is for somebody else, the people that are new to the faith. But remember, the younger son isn't just some random kid off the street. It's his son. They, they had a relationship. He knew the father's love before he left. And you look at the other parables that Jesus is telling in Luke 15. The sheep that the shepherd goes to search for, it's a sheep that was from the fold, not just some random sheep out there. And even the purse, when the woman is looking for the coins, it's the coin that has fallen from her own coin purse. The parable of the younger son is not just the story for the new believers. It's the story for those of us who have grown up in the church all of our lives and find ourselves in sin. And there is no sin you could possibly commit that could hold more power than the blood of Jesus Christ. You might say, I should have known better. You might say, I don't deserve it. You might look yourself in the mirror every morning in shame. But the truth of the matter is, the Father is looking for you, and when he sees you, he runs, he embraces you, he gives you a new clothing, a ring, sandals, and like it or not, he's throwing you a party. This party is not an anomaly. It's not out of sync with the character of God. This is just what God does. All those other parables in Luke 15, they all end with a party. Find the sheep, throw a party. Find the coin, invite the neighbors, let's celebrate. The son comes home, and the biggest party is thrown. We had to celebrate, the father says. We had to celebrate and be glad. It's necessary, it's fitting. This isn't one of those, oh, just swing by if you had time. We had to celebrate. Somehow this is wrapped up in God's love over us. The mistake of the older son, by the way, is not the fact that he's out in the fields. The mistake is his refusal to come into the party. It's when he is invited, wants nothing to do with it. When the lost is found, we celebrate. The only thing left to do is enjoy the party. My tendency would be to run out to the fields to prove to my father just how sorry I am. I want to, to do things that show the father, yes, I am repentant, yes, I have changed, as if anything that I do could be more powerful than the blood of Jesus Christ. If I were the father, I would like to think that maybe I could get on board with the party. But if I were the father, I'm pretty sure I would want to have a waiting period before we celebrated. The son comes home, I welcome him, do this and that. But I'm going to wait a month before we throw the party to make sure he's really changed. Because what happens... What happens if the son comes home and I throw him a party and the next morning he wakes up and his belly is full and he goes, huh, I think I want to go off to that foreign land again. 
What happens if he leaves a second time? And what happens if, again, if he comes back and wants to be brought in, does the father forgive him? I think he does. Well, how many times is the father going to forgive this son? I don't know, seven times? Seven times? Seventy times? This is why the gospel is offensive. Because we see people that have it coming, and God celebrates them. It's absurd. <laughs> With all that, though, I have to say, in the back of my mind, there is still, still the thought, well, well, what about the consequences? Come on, you sin, there are consequences to your sin, right? Where does he make it up to his father? Where does he make things right again? And so I have these questions in my mind, so my tendency is to kind of sulk in the corner of the party, wondering when this guy's going to make things right. But the reason why the younger son is invited to the party without paying for his sins is because another son before him has already paid the price for those sins. You see how offensive this is, how outrageous it is. We do wrong, Jesus is punished, we are rewarded. If Jesus takes on the full weight of our sins, why do some of us try to insist on carrying a portion of it? Some of you might be thinking, well, this is just an invitation to sin over and over and over again. Well, yeah, this is what the Apostle Paul was talking about when he says, shall we go on sinning that grace might increase? By no means, but that's a sermon for another day. Today, you're being invited to the party. Today, you are being invited to the celebration. Before Glennon Melton gave her life to the Lord, she was an alcoholic, she was a foodaholic, and she had a police record that was longer than your arm. It's also during that time that she had an abortion. Soon after, she came to know the Father's love. She became a Christian, and she began to uh, write and speak in Christian circles. Now, interestingly enough, most of the pushback that she got, most of the criticism that she got was from fellow Christians. One woman in particular, I remember seeing, made the comment, I don't see how she can be so shameless about her abortion. Isn't that the point, Glennon says? Isn't that the whole, the whole thing right there, the whole point of Christianity, that we're made new? She asks, what is the point of this Christianity thing if we're going to choose shame over grace? She then explains, it's like going to a party and refusing to dance. And not just refusing to dance, but you try to keep other people from dancing as well. She then says, I am a former drug addict, I am a former food addict, grace is the only high I have left. Many of us stop short by embracing that grace. Okay, sinner, come home, hug the father, go to the party, but don't you dare have fun. 
because if you smile, if you dance, if you're celebrating, people are gonna think you're shameless. But again, isn't that the point? My daughter Clara was playing school a few months ago, and she was the teacher, and God was her pupil, and that right there says pretty much all you need to know about my daughter. But she's sitting at her little desk, and she's writing. I say she's writing. She doesn't know how to write. She's writing, and she stops, and she says, Mommy, what does God like to do? I said, well, I know that God likes to spend time with you. Okay, goes back to writing. Mommy, does God want to pray with me, or does God want to color with me? I said, I think God wants to color with you. Oh, good, she said, and pulled out the crayons. Some of us are awfully good at turning our relationship with God into homework. As if praying and reading our Bible, two wonderful things are the only ways in which we connect with the Lord. I think that's one of the greatest tricks of the devil, by the way, is convincing Christians that those are the only two avenues with which we can connect to God. Come to the party. Eat the food, play, enjoy, live, dance, and let those around you dance as well. I'm going to ask you to do something this morning. We're going to open up the altar in a little bit because there are some of us here who are in desperate need of receiving the love of the Father. Before we do that, though, I want you to imagine the face of God. You can close your eyes, leave them open, it doesn't matter. Imagine the face of the Father. Get that in mind. That picture that you have of God, is he smiling? And I don't, I don't just mean with his mouth. His, are his eyes smiling? You know the difference. If you cannot conjure up an image of a father who smiles at you, come to the altar and receive his love. If you are the lost son, the father loved you before you even repented, come to the altar and receive the father's love. Even if you're in pig clothes. If you are the older son and you are in the fields, Come to the altar because the love of the Father is more important than any work you're trying to do for him. Come and receive the love of the Father. And if your image of God involves a stern face or a balance scale or that look of disappointment in his eyes, then leave that false image of God in your pew and come to the altar knowing that before you even step foot in the aisleway, you are loved. Will you pray with me?
Lord, somewhere along the way, our image of you has become so distorted. We impose our own earthly relationships onto you, viewing you as we might view an earthly parent. You are a father, God, but unlike any father we have ever known. You are love, but unlike any love we have ever known. And Lord, I pray that today you would give us the courage to celebrate, that we would shed any false notions of trying to earn your love, we would simply allow ourselves to be caught up in your embrace regardless of what we are wearing help us Lord because it is hard it is hard to grasp even a fraction of your love and yet that's what we're asking for this morning it's in your name that we pray Amen